When you think about what makes a man a real man, what comes to mind? Maybe if you're uh, old enough, what's that? John Wayne. There you go. There you go. You're reading my mind. You read my notes. I was going to start out with the Marlboro Man, but I, I didn't find a picture of him without a cigarette, so I didn't want to put a picture of him up here in church. So maybe the Marlboro Man, you know, rugged, and cowboy, smoking filtered cigarettes, you know. And that's what the Marlboro Man was meant to do, to, to teach men that uh, they could smoke filtered cigarettes and still be real manly, you know. So they came up with that character. Or maybe John Wayne. There we go. There he is. John Wayne said, I want to play a real man in all my films, and I define manhood simply. He said, men should be tough and fair and courageous, never petty, never looking for a fight, but never backing down from one either. I want to go home and watch John Wayne movie now, right? Probably better than the Cowboys. But anyway, Will Chamberlain. Maybe he's a real man. Or was. You know, Will Chamberlain, famous basketball player, one of the most incredible athletes ever, claimed that he slept with over 20,000 women. Is that what a real man is? Someone who sleeps around a bunch, you know? It, it's funny because after he came out that, and said that, he lost all of his endorsements and realized that was uh, not a smart thing to say. And uh, near his death, he said... A little bit of a change of heart. He said, with all you men out there who think that having a thousand different ladies is pretty cool, I've learned in my life, I've found that having one woman a thousand different times is much more satisfying. So I guess he had a change of heart. You know, is manhood just a, an image that Wall Street or Hollywood or sports marketers create? I don't think it is. Uh, God says something about manhood. In his word. And it would make sense, wouldn't it, for the creator of men to know what manhood is. And he's not only the creator of men, but he's the creator of the differences between men and women. And so we really ought to ask him. And fortunately, we don't have to guess or speculate what God says because he's told us in his word what it means to be a man. If you have access to a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. In Genesis 1.27, here's what we read. And we're sort of going to be skimming around a little bit in Genesis 1 through 3 because these chapters really describe the topic of the day. What is a man? What are the responsibilities of a man? In Genesis 1.27, very famously, God, the Bible says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, even though this sermon is specifically geared toward the men and helping you understand what a real man is supposed to be, I need to say this about this verse in Genesis 1.27. Men and women are made in the image of God equally. Equally. According to God, men and women are equal in worth. They are equal in value. They are equal in importance. They are equal in dignity. Women are not inferior to men, regardless of what some chauvinists say. And women, excuse me, men are not inferior to women. 
regardless of what some feminists say. Neither women nor men are inferior to the other. But even though men and women are equal in their worth, in their importance, in their dignity, there are some very obvious differences between the way God made men and the way God made women, and we're not just talking about the physical differences. You see, in the next chapter of Genesis, in Genesis 2, we discover some very important distinctions between men and women. And then, in Genesis 3, when the fall of mankind happened, when man sinned, these distinctions became reinforced. Now, let me just tell you from the outset, there are some Christian theologians who, uh, they make an effort to appear, or to appeal, rather, to the ever-changing winds of society. They always want to be the most popular. And, um, and they have said recently that the traditional roles of men and women, those roles that we play at home or in, in the church, that those roles were really established because of sin in Genesis 3. And the argument goes that now that Christ has reversed the curse of the fall and he's forgiven sin, that those male-female roles in the home and in the church are abolished. But this is simply a misunderstanding of Scripture. And we might discover in this series that what we consider to be traditional roles might not actually be biblical roles, but we're going to look at the biblical roles of man and woman in the days and weeks ahead. The simple fact is this. Male and female roles in the home and in the church did not come about because of the fall of Genesis 3. They existed in Genesis 2 prior to the fall. And the one who established male and female roles in the home and in the church was God himself. And so what are those roles for men and women? Well, we're going to discover the roles of men and women in the home and the church over the next few weeks. But today, before we get to those roles that we play at home and in the church, I want to just ask the question, what does it mean to be a man? Next week, we'll look at what does it mean to be a woman. So today, what does it mean to be a man? And I'm not saying what does it mean to be a husband. Because there are men here who are not husbands. I'm not saying, what does it mean to be a father? There are men here who don't have children. What does it mean to be a man? Regardless of whether you're a husband, regardless of whether you're a father, what does it literally mean to be a man? So let's strip away how men relate to their spouses and their children, and let's explore God's Word to determine what it means to be a man. Now, this is a challenge for us because nowhere in Scripture is there a systematic outline or recipe of all the ingredients that make up a man? Instead, what we have to do is we have to turn to the very beginning of human existence. We have to look for clues, like detectives would, and put all these clues to together to form an overall picture. And the very first thing that we can observe about what it means to be a man is that there is a connection, a very deliberate connection between man and the ground, between Adam and the ground. The Hebrew word, this is the only Hebrew I'm going to teach you today, okay? The Hebrew word for ground is Adama. Obviously, that's where Adam got his name, okay? And so there's a connection already in the names. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, we read, 
Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. There's a connection between the man and the ground in Genesis 2.5. Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God, very famously, formed man out of the dust from the ground. Again, very strong connection between man and the ground. And the Lord God breathed into the nostrils, into his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And so God formed Adam out of the dust of the Adamah, the ground. Man has a connection to the ground, and this is very important for us to understand. And you might recall that in Genesis 1, in that summary chapter of all of creation, that God gave man and woman dominion over the earth. Genesis 1.28, we read, God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the man and the woman were given dominion. They, plural, both of them, given dominion to rule over the earth. Now, one of the ways that Adam in particular exercised his dominion over creation was by naming parts of God's creation. In Genesis 2.19, we read, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he, the man, would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The act of naming something means you have authority over it. I mean, what gives a person the right to name something? Well, the only way you can name something is if you have a greater and a prior authority over what is being named. That's why we name our children, we name our dogs, we name certain things. Some of us name our boats or our cars, you know. But we have a greater and a prior authority over whatever is being named. And here's the interesting thing. Adam didn't wait for Eve to be created before he started exercising authority over all of creation by naming it. I mean, the man and the woman both have authority over creation, but Eve did not yet exist. When Adam started naming things, why didn't Adam wait? I mean, wouldn't that just be the nice thing to do? To wait for your wife? He wouldn't be the first person to ever wait for his wife. Why didn't he wait for his wife? Because man has a God-given instinct to take the initiative and to bring order and dominion to things. It is in the heart of man. Now, to be perfectly clear again, it's not that women don't exercise authority over the earth. They do, just as men do. But the man here is exercising dominion before the woman is made. You see, there's something about the need to be in charge that is distinctively male. From day one, men have had a need to feel like they are in charge. 
That is why, among other things, men like to hold the remote control. I've often thought about bringing remote controls to church and just handing them to the men so they could feel like they were in charge of the entire worship service, you know. And when they unsuccessfully try to mute me, I could just say, well, the batteries must be bad. But Adam is naming the creatures because he knows he has authority over them. And here's something else to consider. Adam is naming that which is made from the ground. The creatures are made from the ground, from the very same ground that Adam was made from. Again, Genesis 2.19, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And so over and over again in these chapters, man is connected to the ground. Before the woman is ever created, the man is exercising his dominion over the ground by naming the animals that come from the same ground he does. Now, there was another way that Adam exercised his authority over the ground, and it was this. God gave the man the task of working and keeping the garden. Genesis 2.15 Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, that means to work it, and to keep it. That was Adam's responsibility. And this is a clue as to how God made you, men. You are to work and to keep. The working and the keeping aspect of exercising dominion, well, it's not easy. Why? Because man sinned. When Adam sinned, we all know that man had to pay a price. But you know what else had to pay a price? The ground that the man was connected to. Genesis 3.17, God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. You see, working a cursed ground, it became part of the punishment for the man and it's part of our experience today. You see, you and I don't have specific dominion over a very specific Garden of Eden today. We have a different type of dominion. Every single man here has dominion over something in their world or some things in their world. And whatever dominion God has given you, it is more difficult than it should be because Adam's sin introduced a curse upon it. But nevertheless, in spite of the curse, in spite of the difficulty that we have in exercising our dominion over whatever part of creation God has given us, Men are wired to represent God's dominion over the earth through the work that God calls them to do. Adam was given a garden to work and to keep. And God has given every single man a garden, if you will, a realm to work and to keep. And so whatever realm... 
God has placed you men, you are to invest your time and your energy and your thoughts on how you can bring about that which is good. You are to be productive in your work so that you can provide for yourself and by extension your family and also be generous with others. You are to make your world, men, an orderly place. Your career, an orderly career. Your house, an orderly house. Your family, an orderly family. Your finances, orderly finances. That is part of what makes you a man. And God calls you not only to work, but also to keep your garden. That means you nourish your garden. Men who are driven to accomplish their work, we know they can, they can become very task-oriented. They can become very job-oriented. Workaholics. They might even have a lack of good people skills because they're so very task-oriented. But listen... Part of the keeping of your garden means you must focus on people. You must nurture. For example, in Ephesians 5, husbands are called to nourish their wives. In Ephesians 6, fathers are called to raise their children in the nurture of the Lord. It is an absolute fallacy to think that there is no role for men as nurturers. The idea that women deal with heart issues while men just remain hard as stone brutes is not biblical. The Bible calls on men to be cultivators and keepers. That means you must tend to the hearts of those given into your care. You must tend to the hearts of your wife and your kids and your grandkids and your friends and your employees. Listen, if you are a hard-hearted boss at work with no concern for the welfare of the employees under you or their families, you are less of a man than a boss who cares. I can say that because God always cares, and real men emulate God. Men, you have a responsibility to work, and that by implication means you provide, and you have a responsibility to keep, and that by implication means protect. You are a provider, you are a protector. Keeping and nurturing implies protection. And again, I want to be very clear about this. Keeping is not a quality that is feminine in nature. It is not. In the Bible, the word keep was used of the following people. Priests, who were male. Shepherds, who were typically male. Soldiers, who were typically male. And God himself. God keeps us safe. He protects us. 
And so God gave men these two responsibilities, to work and to keep, to provide and to protect. Both of these are how the man exercised dominion over his part of the world. And if you're a man, this is your responsibility. And by the way, when I mention responsibility, there's a flip side to that coin. The other side of the coin of responsibility is another word, authority. Responsibility always implies authority. If you have responsibility for something, then you have authority to do it. Responsibility and authority always go together. I'll give you an example. If you uh, give your car keys to your teenager, it is not just responsibility that you're handing over. It is authority. You have just given your teen authority over your car. If you start a job, certain responsibilities come with that job, and that means that you have certain authority at that job. Responsibility always, always implies authority. And so when God gave Adam the authority in Genesis 2, not only to name the creatures, but you'll notice he named his wife. When God gave Adam the authority to name his wife after she was made, God was giving Adam responsibility for her. That's very important to keep in mind. Because then in Genesis 3, when the serpent comes along, the serpent didn't tempt Adam. The serpent didn't talk to Adam. The serpent made his way to Eve. And Eve ended up not listening to the one who had authority and responsibility over her, which was Adam, but rather she listened to the serpent. And Adam didn't do any better himself. Instead of listening to God, who has authority over Adam, Adam listened to Eve. Why did the serpent go to Eve? Why didn't the serpent try to deceive Adam? I mean, don't you think that the serpent might have been able to talk Adam into disobeying God too? Probably. Probably so. But the serpent went to Eve to try to destroy the man's authority. The serpent wanted to undermine Adam's authority and upset God's created order. God, however, would have none of it. God would not allow Adam to escape responsibility for his wife. You see, after Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They both hid from God. But who did God call out? He called out Adam. They're both hiding. God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, it says 9, 9. It should be 3, 9. God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Even though Eve sinned first, God held Adam responsible. Adam had followed Eve's leadership, if you can call it that. 
And so God needed to and was about to reestablish his original created order. God gave the man authority and God would hold the man responsible. Then, Genesis 3, 16 and 17, Then to Adam, to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have, not, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. God's talking to Adam, not because of the wife. Because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. God continues. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. There's the curse of death. It falls on Adam, not Eve. Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, even when God pronounced the curse of death on all of humanity, He did so while talking to the man. God gave the command to obey to the man. And God held the man accountable. Here's the big picture. Man exercises dominion by working and keeping, by Providing and protecting, this is built in the, into the soul of every man. And that's why if a man loses his job, it affects him deeply in his soul. Because whether he acknowledges the Word of God as the Word of God, there's something within the heart and the soul of man that needs to provide, that needs to protect. According to God's design, manhood is the God-given authority to provide by working and to protect by keeping. This is what real men are. This is what real men do. And by the way, you notice I didn't say anything about your talents or your skills. You are not more of a man because you have been born with certain talents or abilities. Being strong physically does not make you a man. Being intelligent does not make you a man. Talents, likewise, have nothing to do with being a man. Abilities have nothing to do with being a man. There's a website, it's sort of fun sometimes to look at, it's called The Art of Manliness. It's like a boot camp for men to become classic men. There are tutorials on how to tie a tie, or how to shave like your grandpa, or how to take a lady on a proper date. You know, the, and the idea of the whole website is very simple. Manhood is attained by having certain skills. But really, if you think about it, it's not true. You are not more of a man because you have acquired certain skills. Throwing a football or dunking a basketball does not make you a man. Playing a musical instrument with expertise does not make you a man. Becoming well-educated and spending years in school does not make you more of a man. You see, if any of those things made you a real man, 
than a man who is shorter or slower or more disabled or less skilled or less intelligent or less qualified or less educated or less able to access opportunities or less wealthy or less famous would be less of a man than the others. And that simply is not the case. In God's Word, God defines masculinity not in terms of talent or skill. It is in terms of character. Character is what makes a man. Here are some of the words that describe the type of character that makes a real man. Humble, responsible, generous, sacrificial, risking, initiative-taking, protecting, loving. These words describe Jesus Christ, the truest man who ever lived. The greatest example of manhood ever is Jesus. So let me give you a definition of real manhood. Real manhood selflessly acts upon man's responsibility to manage God's creation, to provide for and protect others, and to lovingly and sacrificially lead in the ways God's Word prescribes. Being a real man means being selfless. In other words, Men, the authority that God has given you in your life is not to be used for selfish reasons. You should always look to use your authority as a man to be benevolent to others, looking out for others. Being a real man means managing and tending to God's creation. You see, men, we are half of God's royal vice regents on earth. Women are the other half. And as our half, men are to provide order to God's creation. That's why men like to fix things. You bring a problem to a man, he wants to fix it. Even if the problem is deep within a woman's heart, the man is looking for his tools. How do I fix this? And of course, there's not a way to fix it that way. But men are just wired that way. There's a problem, we must fix it. Being a real man means providing. The New Testament puts it this way. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are hard words, and that's the grace-filled New Testament. You must provide. Being a real man means protecting. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and he gave himself up for her. You've got to be willing to give yourself up, to lay down your life if necessary, men, to protect those given into your care. It's part of what a real man is. It's the character being a real man means lovingly and sacrificially leading. Ephesians 5.33, again talking about husbands and wives as an example. It says, each individual among you also is to love his own wife 
as himself. That's what being a real man is. Jesus provided this type of sacrificial leadership to us. And again, he is the truest example, the truest example of a man who ever lived. Everything that God says a man is, Jesus is. Because he was and is 100% God and absolutely 100% man. Men, if you want to become the kind of man that God designed you to be, you simply need to follow the truest man who ever lived. You need to follow Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus lived a life without sin. He didn't get hung up on the things we get hung up on. He was tempted, just like every man here. But Jesus said no to temptation. And he put the Word of God in his heart. And he lived according to the Word of God. The Bible says that Jesus lived without sin and that at the appropriate time he sacrificed and laid down his life willingly. And by doing that, he provided us an opportunity to know our Father. There's a reason God is called our Father. And it is because a father teaches a son how to be like a real man, how to be a real man. And he is our father. He is fatherly toward all of us. And men, God is fatherly toward you. He can be your intimate, truest father that you've ever known. But you must receive the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the Bible says that he paid the penalty for all of our failures as men. He paid the penalty for all of our failures. And if we would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that he was raised from the dead, then we can be saved. That is God's plan for every man here today. I invite you to begin following the Lord Jesus Christ today. Would you do that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this very day you have given to us as a day for every man here to be a blessing. To be a blessing over those we have authority. To be a blessing to those that we don't even have authority over. Father, you've given us this task. Help us provide for our, our own families. Help us protect our own families. Father, I pray for every single man that is listening to this message. I pray for them, especially who have lost jobs who are not working through no fault of their own. Father, bless them. Provide them with the means by which they can fulfill the design that you've created in them. Restore to them the joy 
of being able to provide for their families. And Father, I pray that you would honor their commitment to you and that above all, you as our Heavenly Father would provide for all of our needs. I thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you most of all for Jesus. I pray that we would learn to follow him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.